Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 193 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you at the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday night. It's February 3rd, 2021. The kids are either asleep or maybe watching TikToks. I don't know. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Randolph. Randolph. We're back. Mortimer. <laughs> is, this, is this a GameStop reference? Uh, no, it's, it's just trading places has been on the television a lot in the last few days. And so I, I just have to catch. Because of Robin Hood and GameStop, do you think? Like, or is that? I, I, I feel like the, the channel set their schedule so far in advance. It can't have been that, that carefully orchestrated. I, I think it's more about, you know, HBO is trying to push the HBO Max thing so much. And they're, oh, the, I see. And I think they're trying to push coming to America. And so they've re-released coming to, the original coming to America and trading places and are like running them all the time. All right. So tell me if they're going to do a whole Eddie Murphy thing. I haven't seen 48 hours. I, I, oh, I don't think it's a whole Eddie Murphy thing. I think it's a coming to America trading places thing. Mm, all right. Well, interesting. Not as fun as a 48 hours revival. But you got, I mean, you got, to love, you got the, yeah, the, okay. random, the random character crossover, right? When Randolph and Mortimer oh, yeah. are the only two characters who cross over. Yeah, that, that was, that was my, arguably the best part. Uh, okay. Raises a Although I'm one of those, I'm one of those who saw Coming to America before I saw Trading Places, so it didn't make sense to me really? until I saw Trading Places. I don't even know how that could happen, but I'm impressed that that would happen. Um, we may need to do a frivolity segment. We haven't had good, like old-fashioned frivolity for a while, where we have a weird, weird category. So maybe for next week we need to have um, best movie because TV's TV shows have crossovers with some frequency. It's hard to do in movies. We may have to have a best movie crossover, like a real deal, not just an Easter egg, but a real deal crossover like that. See, I, I feel like the Easter eggs are better, but okay. Yeah, something to think about. Speaking of which, we'll uh, we'll have a we'll have a special guest uh, next week. Speaking um, of Easter back, eggs, back to back special guests, my friends. Um, if you've been listening for a while, you know that for uh, uh, for a charitable endeavor. Um, we provided ourselves as the prize for uh, a wonderful charity here in Austin, Casa Marinea. Uh, they did a drawing based on those who, who pitched in with donations to Casa Marinea. And, and the winner, we're very excited to, uh, to report, uh, Greg Giswold is going to appear with us, I think, Steve, that's next Wednesday. Is that right? That's the, pl- that's the plan. It's fantastic. It's, we've got a whole, it, it, there's a lot of interesting things already cooking. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We're super excited and grateful to all of you who gave to Casa Marinea. Thank you so much. Everyone who didn't get picked, the important thing is you gave to a great organization and, and it, it is better to give than to receive. And the week after that, we have uh, uh, the winner of our law school auction, uh, Jake Bishop. Yay, um, Jake. So we'll have Jake so, on there as, so, as well. So so folks are going to get a nice break from from you and me over the next two weeks. Yeah, but but of- before they do, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> there is tonight, episode 193, It's Just Us. The, the early contender for show title. Ooh, for it's Just Us. It's Just Us. Uh, that actually, sounds so intimate. Um, so <laughs> we've got tons of, great stuff, tons of great stuff to talk about. Um, let me see if I can dig up our... Our little run of show because we so have we're, 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 we're going to start with we're going to start with impeachment land because there's 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 stuff going on in impeachment land. Um, yeah, the sequel to Trump Landia, impeachment Landia. There's a lot. There's actually nothing going on at Gitmo, but there's a lot going on at Gitmo. Um, so we actually have a decently sized Gitmo segment tonight. Um, um, good stuff. We have a, we have a brief detour through confirmation palooza. 
um, including the end, the the demise of one of our recurring characters, um, the <laughs> the vacant Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, oh, oh we, we hardly knew ye. Yeah, only 664 days later. Um, <laughs> you want to talk a bit about this interesting story out of Canada about the uh, Canada designating the Proud Boys as a terrorist group? Karukuku, Karukuku, we've got a Canada story, and it's raised questions about the whole designation of organizations as terrorist organizations. So we'll, we'll compare and contrast what the Canadians, it turns out, they can do versus what the United States can and does do. Um, uh, a, a brief SCOTUS update about uh, developments in national security-ish cases that have been kicked off of the February argument calendar because, well, there is this whole change in administration in case you haven't noticed. Lots of um, things that are not as interesting as they had been. Uh, it's, so, it's so weird to have these lawsuits where the caption changes. Like, you know, Trump versus Sierra Club becomes Biden versus Sierra Club, which just doesn't even sound like a dispute. Um, right? <laughs> Wolf, Wolf versus Innovation Law Lab becomes Pekoski versus Innovation Law Lab. They, just like, drop the, they should drop the verse and, and replace it with a with, like a W slash. I, I guess now it's Mayorkas versus Innovation Law Lab. Yeah. Um, so some of these go away and some don't. As 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 the shift from the Bush administration to the Obama administration in the Guantanamo context, you uh, had a lot of people that assumed it was going to be a little less adversarial than and, and yet, and out, and yet, and, and yet, here we are talking about uh, a lot of Gitmo news in 2021. Gitmo news. Talk about right, and then for, then we have two good, we have two good topics for frivolity. Bobby, first, I am going to tell you why Bull Durham came back into my life with a vengeance the other night. Um, so curious how that could be. I can't wait to find out why. Uh, 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 the short version is it has a lot to do with the New York Times is a fantastic spelling bee game that Karen and I are obsessed with. Um, I'm completely dumbfounded. Can't wait to learn about this. And then we're going to make our annual Super Bowl predictions. And can I throw in one? I'm, I'm in, you might be able to dispatch this right off the bat. Oh, I saw this thing where Andrew Yang really wants to like ditch the New York flag, and it set off and had some comments about the color Excelsior, the New York City flag. That's oh, got the city the, flag. Yeah, the oh. city flag, which has the Dutch flag colors in it. And uh, so, among the many conversations, this set off. And by the way. Um, I think it, it's, a, it's a silly idea, perhaps, but it's clever marketing because it sure got people talking and saying, Andrew, 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 uh, often with other words attached to it. But <laughs> as somebody pointed out, they said, and I wonder if this is true, they said, this is why the Knicks and the Mets have the color schemes they do. Is that right, do you think, that they're derivative so I, of the old Dutch flag? I cannot, that, that so flag. I, I, I cannot speak for the Knicks. But I am well versed on the etymology of the New York Mets colors. Okay, um, I'm not surprised that you said that. Lay it on us. So um, the New York Mets colors are a are an ode to the two prior National League baseball teams in New York, nah. and so they took Dodger blue for the for the core background color, and they took the orange, not just the color, Bobby, but the NY logo, the stylized yeah. NY. Yeah. That was the New York Giants logo on their cap. So I, I have no reason to believe that the orange in the Giants logo and the blue in the Dodgers logo were themselves derivative of the Dutch flag. All the more so because the Brooklyn Dodgers, Bobby, were founded before Brooklyn was part of New York City. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think that's right. I think you just shot a big hole in that that comparison. Maybe the Knicks did it this way. The Knicks, who you know, who knows about the Knicks? I mean, who cares about the Knicks? By the way, um, have, have the Dodgers, both the LA Dodgers and the New York Mets. Have either of them retained fidelity to the hue of blue that the Brooklyn Dodgers Dodgers used? They both have. Yeah. 
Okay. They both have. I, I, you know, the there are a lot. I mean, there's 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 a whole thing about what's his face, the new Mets owner Steve Cohen, trying yeah. you know teasing about bringing back the horrendous black uniforms. Um, no. The blue. So so although the shade of white has changed on the jerseys from like this ecru to to bright white back to ecruish, like mm-hmm. the blue is the blue has been the blue and the orange have been pretty consistent. That's awesome. Um, the, this, this by the way, this reminds me of this of my stupidest favorite thing about the 2015 Major League Baseball playoffs, aka the last time the Mets did anything useful. Um, I'm trying. To, I'm going to get this wrong, but there was a point, Bobby, where the only remit where there were a number of teams left in the playoffs, but they all were the same shade of blue caps. <laughs> so it was like the Mets, the Cubs, the Dodgers, the oh, Blue awesome. Jays, the Royals, the Rangers. And what was crazy was they all, they just, they had different squatchies. <laughs> you know what the squatchy is? No idea. The squatchy is the little button. The button? The squatchy is the little button on the top of the cap. Nice. And the button changed. The Mets have an orange squatchy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. All right. So for, for anyone who's new to the show, we have a lot of new listeners. You're probably like, wait, I, did I download the wrong thing? No, we do this. Listen, I think that when Lawfare carries this, I think they cut out all this junk. Oh, my gosh. They, they edit the crap out of they this. Straight, I actually have not actually listened to see what, what our friends, what Jake and them are doing. But I assume they cut all this off. And, and you know, that's just kind of, it comes with the territory. But I think we're ready. Uh, we've done our pre-frivolity. Now we'll do the substance. All right. Uh, journey land. friends to impeachment land, a land of briefs that are not like each other at all. <laughs> I got to say, there's some pretty, there's comedy gold in this, this 14 pager that was filed uh, by the two guys brought in at the last minute to be Trump's lawyers. As a species of legal document, what this most resembles, I guess it's like an answer to a complaint. Uh, it kind of has it has this sort of Civ Pro um, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, I, I admit the facts in the first clause. I deny the facts in the second clause. And and again, you can't you can't do this because I'm out of office. Is kind of is that the long and short of it? And also, my speech is protected by the First Amendment. Which I want to talk about for a second. Yeah, yeah, we definitely need to run through that. I'm like, but, oh. but but my favorite part is when they say, "Oh, and also the chief justice isn't presiding," which is just which proves that this is a sham. Um, my favorite part, though, Bobby, is um, the impeachment trials in the Senate. Um, the brief misspells United States Senate. I believe it says the United States. The United States. The the unities. The unites. I guess is actually the, the unites. Oh, indeed, the 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 unites. Actually, the unites. The unites states. Senate. It's what, always a good sign. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I mean, it's not here's the, first the, the adventure the, in spelling that we've seen. I mean, the, but Bobby, the problem is these briefs don't matter. Like, you know, there there's no Republican senator who's out who's out there saying, "Well, I was on the fence about whether to vote to convict Trump, but man, the compellingness of the House brief and the shoddiness of the Trump right. brief, I'm sold." So maybe there's a certain efficiency and honesty in just like what is clearly just sort of this thrown together. You know, well, we had notes. All right, let's just use your notes. Why should why should we write a big brief? Well, you know, I think it speaks for itself that that's not deemed important. Um, let's talk about the things that actually do matter. Um, first, I think the First Amendment argument is an important one to debunk and discuss. I, I look. Some listeners will be saying, "Well, hold on. What about the central issue? Isn't it unconstitutional?" Or they say it's unconstitutional to try to try him on the impeachment article because he's out of office. We have a whole long discussion of this the moment that issue emerged in our prior episode. 
I think we can just reference back. You and I agree that the arguments are overwhelming, overwhelming against Trump's position on that. That is, we agree that the arguments overwhelmingly favor the constitutionality of impeaching an official or carrying through to conviction for an impeachment based on acts while in office, even if the person is no longer in office. And the short version of it as to why is that we think it's clear using all the methods of interpretation. But here, let's emphasize originalism, that the nature of impeachment at the founding, it was a public inquest into the conduct. It was not a criminal proceeding. It's a public inquest to impose accountability that, yes, includes removal from office, but was never understood to be so limited. It's not just about that. So the fact that that remedy, that particular consequence, has become moot is neither here nor there. Um, most obvious, most obvious evidence that the Constitution embraces the "it's more than removal from office" theory is that there's express textual reference in Article One to the fact that the consequences, if the Senate so votes, can include prohibition on running again for office or again holding office. In fact, not just running. So, and and, and you have ample evidence of late impeachments, including stuff that was in the news at the time, stuff going on in England that was in the news and widely known by all these people at the time they adopted it. So it's a bad argument. That doesn't mean it won't be used as cover. As cover. Right. But uh, that, make no mistake. It's a bad argument. So I, I agree. I would say if folks want to hear what I think is the best version of the bad argument that I've heard yet, Bobby, I was on the Skullduggery podcast this week with Dan Clayman and Mike Isikoff. Oh, that's um, fun. With our colleague, Philip Bobbitt. Um, and Philip is just a, who does take the other view. And and I think Philip does not make some of the arguments that Trump and his supporters have made. But I do think that if you're curious what the coherent, rational version of the still, I think, bad argument sounds like, listen to Philip and, and me, you know, fight about it this week on the Skullduggery podcast. I think it came out pretty well. That's fantastic. Very interesting. Um, yeah. And, there's, and very there's civil. Tons, there's tons of content. Um, I always am always nervous if I if I say anything that disagrees with Philip. He's 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 a brilliant guy, uh, but I'm with you on this one as we've already discussed. So turning right, to so the first amendment argument, this is yes. uh, rooted in the argument that hey, the essence of the there's an interesting question here. What is the essence of the case for trial and uh, for conviction, and how much does it really need to track what? originally was stated in the article itself originally. Certainly the heart of the article is Trump's instigation of the mob that stormed the Capitol. Um, as you and I have already talked about at length, to me, that's, I understand why they framed it that way, but it's really, there's so much more. The big lie about the election is the most, uh, to me, consequential betrayal of the oath of office and, and more so, including the take care clause. Um, but if you, if you narrow it to the, the speech he gave that preceded the crowd going over there and going bonkers at the Capitol, um, we have noted on this show at, in some detail that this definitely presents, if he were to be prosecuted for incitement of some kind, it presents a really challenging first amendment edge case on the Brandenburg doctrine. Um, it's not obvious at all that it's protected under Brandenburg, but there's a good faith argument to be made, and it's it's a great edge case. It'd be a great final exam question. Um, Steve, does any of that matter for the trial of the impeachment article? Nope. All right, on to the next topic. No, <laughs> I mean, I mean, so why? I mean, so why is okay. That? 
So, so uh, this is a couple of different things should be said, right? The first is critically from a constitutional perspective, impeachment is not for constitutional purposes punishment, even though it is, not even though it has, it. even though it imposes a sanction, um, which has consequences, Bobby, not just for the First Amendment, but for Bill of Attainder, which, by the way, is another thing that's getting trotted out by people who don't understand constitutional could, law. If, if this isn't Bill of Attainder, then how could you ever impeach anyone? It's you have to name the person. Well, the, the the argument is that it's not a tender if they're not a private citizen, right? The the argument is that it's an attender because Trump is a private citizen now, not and, and that it wouldn't be if he was still in office. That's just it's a, that's ridiculous. Agreed. Okay, I, I really like it when Bobby makes my arguments for me. It's really it's something. We, have to, we have to milk these moments because we're, we're hoping to move into a time where we can disagree much more vociferously, much more seriously. Um, so okay, here's the thing. So. The, let, let me frame it a little bit more more dramatically, right? Could the president stand up and say, um, hey, guys, I'm an anti-Semite. I hate Jews, right? I'm going to pursue any policy I can to screw over the Jews. I am going to say horrible things about them every day. I'm going to do everything I can to just be obnoxious and horrible and divisive about my anti-Semitism, um, right? Bobby, I think you and I would agree that that speech is constitutionally protected, Um and I think you and I would agree that that is speech that clearly indicates the individual is not worthy of holding the highest office in the United States, um, right? The notion that you can't be impeached for constitutionally protected speech is just silly because it assumes that impeachment, it, it dovetails with the notion that you can only impeach for crimes, right? Which is, right. of course, that's just not true. You can impeach, especially insofar as impeachment is a political remedy for anything that demonstrates the office holders' gross incompetency to hold the office, and that includes things that they say for which they cannot be prosecuted. Exactly, it's it's really pretty simple. You can you can come up with endless hypotheticals of right. of clearly uh, impeachment worthy statements that a president could make. Hey, not hey, Germany during World War II. We're not really guarding Long Island right now, like. You, you FDR, can, you know, that would have been impeachable yeah. if FDR had said that. You can say all sorts of things that that show manifest uh, unworthiness for the office and much worse. And that doesn't mean you have to be prosecutable. And the fact that the First Amendment limits the ability to put people in jail for their words does not mean that it, in some sense, empowers just, it, presidents just, to it, say any damn thing they want. It's just no once again incompatible with the the duties of the office. It's all just based on this fundamental failure to actually think carefully about what impeachment is, right? And it's this notion that impeachment has to follow the rules of criminal trials, which radically misappreciates why impeachment's in the Constitution, what function it serves, and why it doesn't matter, for example, that you're singling out the president through what would otherwise be a bill of attainder. Why does it matter he's no longer in office? Why does it matter that the chief justice isn't presiding? Like, I mean, all of these things dovetail. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I mean, I get it. While like the average person on the street, to the extent they know about impeachment, they're going to be thinking, "Yeah, that's the thing where you get the, you kick the president out," because that's the context in which any normal person would ever hear about this. But that doesn't change the fact that what it actually is is a public inquest into the behavior of people who hold high office. That yes, if they're still in the office, could result in their removal from that office, but was never so limited, never has been. Yep. yep. All right. Um, anything else? So, so I say all this is to say I don't think any of this is going to matter. I think there are going to be at least thirty-four Republican senators who vote to acquit. Um, I think that they will gravitate toward these procedural objections because the procedural objections have the the beautiful quality 
of not requiring a Republican senator to take a position either on whether he condemns Trump's conduct or condones it, um, right? And therefore, he can acquit without doing either of them. Um, but I mean, no, I think you're some, totally have right. Some courage, that, people. That there's going to be enough votes to prevent there being a two-thirds majority for conviction. So, so what that means is it'll it'll go down as it as another impeachment that does not result in conviction. It's I think it's still better than to have not to impeach it at all for this. Um, I still wish that they had done. Tis, 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 tis better to have impeached and failed than not to have impeached at all. At all. That okay. Hold on. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a long. Down. That's, if that's, that's a long episode title. Yeah. Tis, tis better to have impeached and failed. Okay. I can just. That's quite a long episode. Ellipses it after fail. <laughs> all right. So uh, moving on from there, do we want to say anything else about it? No. All right. So buckle up. If his health holds up, uh, it's looking like Donald Trump will be able to enter the field in for 2024, uh, which ironically will probably skewer the chances of some of the people that are most responsible within the Senate for giving rise to this current state of affairs to begin with. And I guess that serves them right. Uh, yes, I, I'm not sure how Josh Hawley runs for president if Donald Trump is running for president. Well, he runs for vice president with Donald Trump, right? I guess you watch. You heard it here first. I just thought of that. That's that's probably what will if if he gets the nomination. Um, rather important that that not be the result. Anyways, uh, <laughs> never thought I'd be able to say this, but turning to uh, a, a less depressing topic, Guantanamo. Yeah. Hey, so still there, still going. Um, strikingly, the Biden administration, unlike the first you know, opening shots of the Obama administration. They're not talking about Guantanamo. Guantanamo shows up nowhere in the agenda. And I don't think that's going to change as you and I predicted. Um, so meanwhile, except, except, except for the story about vaccinations, which I want to get to in a minute. So, yeah. So, so meanwhile, things kind of churn on and it's the usual combination of proceedings being delayed on the military commission's front. And then the odds and ends that arise with the passage of time and life going on when you're trying to operate, you know, whether it's hurricanes one day or a pandemic the next. So let's let's talk before we get to Walker's rolling in Sundell. Let's let's talk about the vaccination issues that are going on, and 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 also just <sighs> the, the delay the delay to the Hambali arraignments and, and other just frictions, shall we say? So what's going on here? So, I mean, we've we've talked before about how for as slow and bad as things have gotten Gitmo, COVID's made everything worse, right? Because it's been um, that much harder to get anybody in a position where they can safely travel to Guantanamo, um, where the relevant parties just haven't agreed to take an extra two weeks on both ends of a hearing to quarantine, right? To justify going to Guantanamo. And so like literally nothing has been happening in pretrial proceedings in just about any of the Guantanamo cases for months. Um, and so there's a story that came out. I think Carol Rosenberg was the first person to report this, but then it got picked up by right-wing media and the Republicans went hippo crazy. Um, hippo crazy, by the way, is my new term for um, faux outrage about that. That's like wantonly hypocritical. Um, uh, oh, so not H-I-P-P-O as I was imagining. No, like 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 hypocrisy, like hypocrisy. I kind of like H-I-P-P-O crazy because that has whole like sort of, uh, you know. Maybe hypocr- 
Hypocrazy? Hypocrazy? Is that is that Hypocrazy sounds like a topic on uh Stuart Baker's show talking Indeed. about HIPAA. <laughs> it's not the HIPAA. Okay. Um so so here's what happened. Near as I can tell, here's what happened. Um the government has been in the midst of vaccinating most of the for lack of a better term, staff, the support personnel, the military service members at Guantanamo. Um and Near as Carol's Carol's wrote, Carol's story from last week all but suggests that the prosecutors in the military commissions proposed offering vaccines to the detainees on the theory that like if they could vaccinate everybody that would actually give them some momentum to get these proceedings going again um right and to actually sort of not not keep having to postpone everything and this was especially true in the Hambali case, which was the brand new charges we talked about in our last episode, right? In which there's the most pressing need for pretrial proceedings. You got to arraign the guys, um, right? So near as I can tell, Bobby, it was the prosecutors, not the Biden. This wasn't like a Biden administration initiative. This was the nope, military. The White House said, "Hey, I want to spend some political capital trying to get some vaccines shipped to the Guantanamo detainees because I right. was just worried about." There that. is no indication this came from from the White House. What it, it everything looks like this came from the prosecutors, um, and the idea was, you know, to offer the detainees the the vaccine. You can't force them to take it, right? It's not like you know. Well, they're not even vaccine. forcing soldiers to take it. Indeed. Um, okay. So that was Carol's story. And when that came out, I was like, oh, interesting. That seems, you know, I, I actually seems like a smart, seems like a smart idea to me. And then the right wing, you know, media machine got hold of this story. And it became all about how Biden is vaccinating terrorists before Americans. Um, and <laughs> that and is, like, uh, that is the state are, of our media, no doubt. There are so many, but it wasn't just the media, Bobby. It was, it was like dozens of, Republicans in Congress, including the junior senator from our fair state of Texas, um, who who I just who is ugh. okay, um, who just like don't even bother thinking for a second about why this might actually have been a useful thing, and also never mind that we might actually have a legal obligation to vaccinate them. So, you know, there, there's actually a bunch of longer arguments that I don't want to that I don't want to sort of walk through in detail, but um, Ona Hathaway. Um, who has spent time at the State Department and is now at Yale Law School? Ryan Goodman, who's been in the Defense Department General Counsel's Office now at NYU, and I. I think Ona was also DOD Special Counsel. If I'm not Indeed, sure. that's right. Ona and Ryan have both held the DOD Special Counsel Law Prof- the, the Law Professor Fellowship gig, um, which I think is I think is currently being held by Tom Lee. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that's um, a, that's right. So, so you know, these are people who know what they're what they're talking about, and there's me. Um, and we wrote a post for Just Security about why there's both pretty good legal arguments that we actually owe an obligation to vaccinate the detainees if they want to be vaccinated, and that in any event, there are actually really good policy arguments, including, oh, by the way, the military commissions could get going again. Um, so I agree that, that at some point you have to offer them vaccines. I don't think there's any obligation to accelerate it in in, in a context in which there are so many people in the population waiting it you may make the policy judgment that that's something you should do with the military store of them. That's a that's a decision the military can make for uh, advancing the trial process. I don't think they have any legal claim though that would be violated if instead the military said like, yeah, that's not a priority. I, I, so I think that's right, but I also think that there's probably a legal argument that that they can't be last. Um, 
right? I, that like, I think I, it would just depend on the neutral application of criteria, including how would you, how would you apply this to otherwise otherwise identically situated? Yes, there's no there's no legal there's no legal requirement that they go to the front of the queue, but there's also but 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 you also can't treat them inhumanely, right? Which means you can't deny them vaccinations just because they're they're terrorists. Right. Outright denial would be right. would be problematic. AKA uh, the Republican political position. All right. So, by the way, I just got a note from Greg. And uh, earlier we announced that that uh, our friend Greg was going to be the was the winner of the Casa Marinea raffle and would be co-hosting the show with us uh, next week. And uh, we had reached out to uh, confirm uh, pronunciation. So Greg's uh-huh. last name Gizvald, not you Gizvald, got it right. Gizvald with the uh, with the that's Z. what you said. That's, yeah. what, that's basically well, what I said. Did I? Yeah. Close yeah, enough. Close got enough. it now. All right. So we're talking um, about Greg. Now back back to Guantanamo. I, I, I will resist. I will resist as much as I can making Clark W. Griswold jokes. <laughs> so you got to save that for next week. I know. Um, okay. Um, so back to Gitmo. Anyway, all this to say, this Bobby, I, I don't want to make more of this than than is there. Like, I mean, so by Saturday afternoon, the Pentagon press secretary was walking back the whole like we we've we've paused this and we're going to reconsider it. Which, by the way, I thought was a preposterously quick cave by the Biden administration. But it's just a pretty powerful reminder that even as we've been ignoring Guantanamo for four years, the second anything happens that can be spun however implausibly as showing any kind of like, you know, human rights, basic fundamental nod toward the detainees, Republicans are going to ostracize and criticize and, and vilify the Biden administration. So, you know, any idea that there's any room for like bipartisan consensus on what to do about Guantanamo, hopefully what happened over the weekend blew up any preconceived notions the Biden administration may have had about that. That I can agree with. I don't think anything is going to go on there because I don't think anyone wants to spend political capital to change that. Balance. No, no but, but I'm saying something different, which is that any, no matter how modest, no matter how appropriate, no matter how you know good for the government, a Biden administration Guantanamo initiative actually is, it's going to be demagogued to hell by the you know right-wing media machine. And you know, I think that that ought to be just something that the Biden administration, I mean, I, I think that was already pretty clear from the Obama administration, but in case they forgot, here you go. I, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Um, Speaking of demagogue in Guantanamo, should we talk about Sundell versus uh, whatever the heck the other party is? Sundell versus United States? So I, I do want to talk about, I, I am curious, I can, t- I can see already, <laughs> I anticipated that you're not <laughs> happy with this one. I'm. I'll be curious to see what exactly is irking you. It's just Sendell versus United States. Um, What's irking me is the first four pages. Okay, that's but, pages, it's only, pages, but it's only four pages, right? No, it's six pages. Pages five and six are fine. All right, the version I'm looking at online doesn't have the page breaks. So, oh, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to narrow it down. So we've got what what could seem to be. Here you go, Bobby. Everything everything before part three irks me. Everything before part three. Yes. Okay. All right. So we got to break it down. Uh, so Phil Sundell, uh, give us some context. Who is he? What's his connection to Gitmo? And what was he trying to accomplish here? So Phil's a military commission defense lawyer. Um, and and he's been working on the commissions for a long time. He's a veteran military commission defense lawyer. Um, and um, Phil, for a couple of different reasons that the D.C. Circuit does not remotely try to actually identify, um, was trying to um, gain access, <clears throat> excuse me, to observe a hearing 
involved in another military commission defendant, excuse me, um, he doesn't represent that particular defendant, but that particular defendant at the moment doesn't actually have any counsel. Um, and so this was basically a public access claim, like whether whether Phil as a fellow Guantanamo defense lawyer had any kind of either specialized right or even generalized public right of access to this particular proceeding involving uh, Ibrahim Al-Kosi, um, a, a separate military commission defendant who Phil does not represent. Um, okay. Um, now, just uh, an important context yeah. here. Uh, Al-Kosi is not in U.S. custody. True. He was released to Sudan uh, a while back. He later turned out to – he showed up at, in Yemen as an AQAP uh, pre, uh, member or, or leader. I don't know exactly what his status was, but he, he re- sort of quote-unquote returned to the battlefield, as is sometimes said, although I think it's a weird phrase to use. But he went back into action. Um so there's a proceeding that pertains to him, but I'll, well, because because his, has has no lawyers is not in contact with well, any so, Americans so, as far as we know. So his former lawyers, right, are continuing to challenge various aspects of his plea agreement, right, and various aspects of of his um, of his sentence. Um, which you know, I, there's a question about whether his former lawyers actually have sufficiently established that they have a relationship with him. Um, you know, I think the answer is basically. Yes, um, but but just am I right that Walker recently also issued a ruling holding that they don't? So it's been way too long since they've had any contact with the guy. They can't continue to represent him. Um, that's not quite accurate, um, right? So there was a summary per curiam order, um, right, about an appeal, not about representing him in the in the military commissions, right? So so there was an appeal that was filed by Alcosi's former lawyers, that in October, the D.C. Circuit summarily dismissed because there was no evidence that the that Alcosi had authorized the lawyers to pursue the appeals. Got it. Got um, it. That's different from whether the lawyers had been authorized to continue litigating in the military commissions, where I don't believe there's a factual, where, where I believe the government, I believe that the, the working assumption is, yes, the lawyers actually were authorized as part of their prior dealings with Alcosi. Right to continue litigating that issue in the military commission. Got it. So, so do we have any idea what the hearing was about? This hearing with classified information that was closed to the public. Yes. Something's going on, I guess, relating to the ongoing appeal. Then that's all we so, can look at. All right, but so you had referenced so Judge Walker, who you know, as I think folks know, is the is the most recent appointee to the D.C. Circuit, um, who replaced Judge Griffith. Um, so Judge Walker had written this very, I think, peculiar short concurrence, Bobby, from that order in October, right? Where among other things he says, so, so he opens it by saying, for nearly two decades, many talented attorneys have represented detainees at Guantanamo Bay. They include advocates at the Military Commission's Defense Organization, professors at more than a few elite law schools and litigators from scores of the nation's most prestigious law firms. Some of those attorneys, perhaps most, he says, have shown a prudent appreciation for the fine line separating zealous advocacy from frivolous tactics designed only to delay and disrupt. Um, yeah. You, and then the rest you, of the- You didn't like that. You're not a fan of that. I, it's, a, it's a procedural order. What is the concurrence accomplishing besides, you know, taking a pot shot at lawyers who are working really hard for very little money to do work no one else wants to do? Like, I, I, I will agree with this. I will say that there are all too many judges, including judges who have a very different political outlook, who, who are intemperate, and take pot shots when they shouldn't, and it and none of it's becoming to the office. 
All right. So then there's yeah. So then there's Judge Walker's majority opinion in the Sundell case. So let me sort of jump to the end. The biggest problem with Sundell's application is that there's is that there's no appellate jurisdiction. There's no mechanism in the Military Commissions Act for him to bring an appeal. So he tried to watch this hearing. The trial judge said no. Right. And then he's basically trying to appeal the trial judge's closure order. Um, Let me just say, there is a really serious set of open questions, Bobby, about public access to the Guantanamo military commissions that the D.C. Circuit has never addressed. Like it is not settled to what extent there is any right of public access to the commissions. Who holds that right? Right. Whether security cleared defense lawyers have any special right of access to these proceedings. So there are open questions. The problem with Sundell's case was there was no jurisdictional mechanism to raise those questions before the D.C. Circuit. Because of the Military Commissions Act foreclosing non uh, appeals that are, or yes, appeals that are not the result of final judgment. Of a final judgment, exactly. So, so um, I agree. I agree with that. Like, and, and certainly, one thing I would say about this opinion by Judge Walker is there's a whole lot of stuff that doesn't need to be said, and and shouldn't be said if you have some entirely different reason for ruling, which is how it turns out in, towards the end. Um, and but, but it's worse. Than, it's worse than that. We, we teach we teach our law students right that if you don't have jurisdiction you shouldn't be saying anything else right so I agree with all that um, on the on the right of public access issue I agree that to the, for the non classified proceedings there's lots of, of very rich issues there um, I'm not sure I see where Sundell for this particular circumstance where apparently it's not disputed that classified information is being presented in this other proceeding and since he's not representing a party to it. I just don't see him as presenting a very compelling case on the merits if it were to come to that. Though I agree with you, no one should be commenting on the merits because there's no jurisdiction. So imagine, Bobby, imagine if the hearing involved information the government was using against multiple defendants, right? Including a defendant who Sundell represents, right? We don't know if that's the case, but like I can construct a hypothetical that is not rejected by this opinion where I actually think there'd be a pretty good argument that he'd have a, a specialized interest, what, what we often refer to as a need to know yeah. right, in the context of classified information. I guess I'd say we'd need some reason to think that that was this case. Well, I'm just saying I, one could construct a scenario where that's possible. Um, instead, here's how Judge Walker opens the opinion. In this case, a defense attorney named Philip Sandell, with no client, petitioned a court with no jurisdiction, to reverse a procedural ruling, excluding the public from a classified hearing, an appeal filed by other attorneys who, like Sundell, have no client, welcome to Guantanamo Bay. Okay, I am sorry. That is gratuitous, unnecessary, and just not like, I mean, give me a break, I, right? No, I just, I look, it's not what I would have written. I agree that it's- Welcome to Guantanamo Bay? It's a little much, but it's only a little much. I think that if we wanted to go down the path of identifying judicial opinions where people are being too snarky, that way lies madness because there's a lot of that out there. I don't see this as that far outside the bounds. All right. So what about part two of the It's not something I put forward as a model for students. I'll grant you that. So what about part two of the opinion where Judge Walker spent a couple of pages speculating about whether it's appropriate for Sundell as a government lawyer employed by the Military Commission's Defense Organization to be suing the military commissions. Yeah, I think right? th- th- that's, I think, the weirdest part of the opinion. And I, th- I think we should dig into this a bit because it, it, he's taken the position, if I'm reading him right, and it's not entirely clear exactly what line he's trying to draw because at the end, as you emphasize, 
He backs off and says, I, I don't know if this is a problem or not. But he goes a long This might way, be a thing. He goes a long way towards asserting that government employees should ne- just in general shouldn't sue their employers. Uh, and he characterizes it as simply suing over an internal policy, which is tantamount to saying, well, you shouldn't bring frivolous suits against your employer. Who's going to argue with that? Uh, that's fine. Begs the question, though, of whether the suit had merit or not. Um, the fact that none of this is then the basis for any ruling by him is exactly why we tell students it, that that is wrong, especially in a circumstance where you're denying your court has jurisdiction at all. It's It's wrong to offer all this dicta. True. I mean, and, and, and so, I mean, he says, we're not saying that having lost the internal debate, a government lawyer can, as a member of the public, litigate the debate's outcome in federal court, nor are we opining on the constitutionality of that debate's outcome. It's an open question whether the first whether the public has a First Amendment right to attend hearings related to detainees of Guantanamo. For now, we simply note that allowing a government lawyer to litigate that question as a member of the public would invite ill-advised litigation in other contexts. Never mind that we don't have jurisdiction to note anything. In short, Sundell may or may not have prudential standing, but we need not address that precise issue today because there's a clear reason we must dismiss the case. We lack subject matter jurisdiction. Way to bury the lead. Yeah, <laughs> certainly burying the lead. So I, I thought about this a lot because it's hard to parse what sort of what sort of doctrinal position he's obviously he doesn't hold it, but what kind of doctrinal position is he trying to hint at very, very, very strongly? Um there is certainly a limit on the standing, the prudential standing of John Q. Public to raise issues. And, and if you look really closely at Judge Walker's language here, it's, it's a little unclear. Is he just saying that like the rest of the public, the government agency's own lawyers, like the rest of the public, don't have general standing to challenge things? Or is he instead trying to say that if premise one, it's a situation where John Q. member of the public would have had standing somehow. Then two, premise two, if you're not John Q. member of the public, but rather John Q. from the same department as the agency that's now uh, under the microscope, that you're disabled from availing yourself of the standing that you would have had if you just worked in some other agency. Um, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think any court's ever held that, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not aware of such a case either. And, I mean, there's just, and, and there's not a cite, there's nary a citation to a legal yeah. source in part two for that reason. So yes, let me, he does cite a law review article by the other, by the other, by, by one of the judges on his panel, judge Silberman about, about one of the other. Yeah. It's by. Listen, I just, I just, so, so I just, I just think of like, to me, Bobby, like this augurs a return to like the bad old days of Guantanamo jurisprudence, where DC Circuit judges were taking pot shots at Guantanamo lawyers, where they were going out of their way to be hostile to claims that weren't even properly before them, like where they were doing all kinds of things that you and I would agree in the abstract are not the models of appropriate judging. And I just, you know, it's like we're we're going back in circles now on Gitmo. Like we're 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 heading back toward toward the bad old days. So I I think that's too much. I don't. I think this is too thin a read to carry that the way to that. Um, but I oh, will, it's not the it's will, not it's not it's not the first time we've heard from Judge Walker in a Gitmo case. And and if we're talking about the thing we talked about before, I'm, I'm not as bothered as you were by what he said before. Um, I I think that it's very 
uh, inappropriate to have offered the entire section to analysis. And it doesn't seem to actually state any, it seems to not only not state a proposition of law that actually is a thing, but not to try to claim it is a thing because it backs off the last second. The whole thing should have just been cut and you know offered as a law review article or something else. Three paragraphs. We don't have subject matter. We, here's why we don't have subject matter jurisdiction. Bye. That that much that much we can agree on. Anyway, and then we talked briefly about this, but just uh, one other Gitmo thing related to the vaccination thing is that the the trial judge presiding over the Indonesia case has now postponed the arraignment for I think forty days. So that's off to a rip roar and good start. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. No. I'll just say that. All right, should we pivot to confirmation palooza? Yeah, so uh, you know we've we've gotten lots of mileage about the question of who in the world is in charge of the Department of Homeland Security. Really, not not like who's staying in there, the Homeland Security Secretary, who's legally in charge of this thing. Um, and I guess you know all the fun's just about over. It is over. There's a there's a Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security. Yeah, who even knew that was yeah, still a thing? Things will bubble up with those prior guys sooner or later. But yes, uh, Secretary Mayorkas is is in, and um, six hundred and sixty four days later. Yes, well, at least he wasn't hanging out that whole time. Um, but but I will say, I, uh, um, I can't resist the temptation to point out that the Heritage Foundation has hired Chad Wolf, Ken Cuccinelli, and Mark Morgan as senior fellows. And in the release where they announced the hiring, they referred to Chad Wolf as the quote Secretary of Homeland Security, and Ken Cuccinelli as the quote. Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, and I'm just not having it. Like, no, well, I, <laughs> they I, were never that. My only comment on that is, I like it that that was like a package deal. It's like Bogo, or <laughs> what's the acronym for two for? You know, is there a thing like Bogo for two for one? You know, like, two for one, a three. This is a three for one. Um, I like to imagine that they're all sharing an office. Um, oh wait, wait, wait. There's a, wait, wait. There's a line in dodgeball. It's a three on one. You have to pay double for that. Um, oh man! I, I've, right, well, I've now I, crossed we, the line at at nine at nine ten p.m. on on Wednesday, February third. All right. Um, really quickly, one other confirmation piece, just because Lindsey Graham is being Lindsey Graham. Um, the Senate Judiciary Committee has still not announced a hearing date for President Biden's nominee to be Attorney General Merrick Garland, who, by the way, was announced as Biden's nominee a month ago. Um, why hasn't the Senate Judiciary Committee announced a hearing date for the nominee of the Attorney General of the United States? Well, Lindsey Graham says, we're busy. Tell me that. It's, I honestly have no idea the answer to this question. Are there other cabinet secretaries, have all the other ones gotten their dates and the AG is just being singled out and held up? I think um, no. Or at least the ones who've been nominated for a while as opposed yes, to the most recent Yes. So, everyone, so my understanding is everyone who was nominated before Garland, maybe with the exception of Deb Haaland, Haaland may still be out there. But like, you know, Garland's, I mean, you know, Tony Blinken was confirmed as Secretary of State. Avril was confirmed as DNI. Mayorkas was confirmed. Pete Buttigieg was confirmed as Lloyd Transportation Austin, Secretary. Yeah. Well, I mean, like. If, if, if they get around. Wait, Bobby, we haven't gotten to the hypocrisy yet. So Lindsey Graham wrote a letter about why we're too busy to have a confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland. It's, it's that impeachment trial. It's taking up so much time. And then anticipating the incredibly obvious response, he says, yes, it's true that we had a really, really quick confirmation process for Amy Coney Barrett's lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. 
But this is totally different. You know why this is totally different, Bobby? Because Amy Coney Barrett had previously been confirmed by the Senate just a few years ago, whereas Merrick Garland had previously been confirmed by the Senate more than a few years ago. Ah, totes different. There. Totes different. Totes vive la différence. Give so, me a break, Lindsey Graham, Lady so G. Let, let's, hope, let's hope this clears up real quick. Merrick Garland got screwed previously, Twice. previously in, in, a, in a historic way. The least they could do is have a proper confirmation process here. And of course, holding up the confirmation of an attorney general, um, that is not a good look. So that needs- But also, I mean, but also like, is, does anyone actually think that he's not going to be confirmed? I mean, no, it's going to well, be like in, 85 in fact, to 10. Well, here's the thing. From, from the conservative perspective, um, you should be pretty happy- that Merrick Garland was the selection. There's any number of possibilities that many of Biden's constituents would have much preferred, no doubt. Yes. Far more aggressive and radical and partisan. But I guess Republicans going to Republican. All right. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about uh, I want to talk about SCOTUS for a second. And you also want to talk about Canada. What should we do first? Uh, I want to talk about Canada. This this let's get back into core national security stuff. Canada has uh having an attorney general is core national security stuff sorry just couldn't resist you said you know republicans got a republican that's partisan stuff let's focus on this canada has a framework that superficially might seem similar to the united states framework for designation of foreign terrorist organizations there's a key difference we'll get to in a moment um but like a lot of countries they do from time to time publish a list of formally designated, or as they would say, listed um, listed organizations and various consequences in the immigration setting and in the criminal prosecution setting, um, material support type concepts come into place, come to play. It's a big deal when you identify a group, especially one that actually has potentially some members that are within reach of your own government um, or might receive support from people who are within reach of your own government. It's a big deal to be listed or designated. Um, Today, I'm going to read this here from the announcement from Canada. They added to their list 13 new groups uh, designated or listed today. Um, there were some Al-Qaeda affiliates, some Daesh affiliates, Hezbollah Mujahideen, and then also Adam Waffen Division, the base, the Proud Boys, and Russian Imperial Movement Um some neo-Nazi, some white supremacist groups, but you've heard in that list, the Proud Boys, a name that I think most of us not heard of until fairly recently, unless you followed American extremism movements um, or white supremacist movements, and then have become all too familiar in more recent days. Um, this is a big deal, I think, to, to designate them as a terrorist organization as Canada did, and it immediately set off. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of debate about, like, you know, is what is known publicly about the Proud Boys, is that terrorism? And it's it spurred some interesting debate there. More importantly, it spurred a debate about, well, so shouldn't the United States, if Canada can do it, why can't the United States? Uh, and there, there are several reasons, one of which is that the Canadian legal framework for listing organizations does not require that a terrorist organization be foreign, and the U.S. model does. 
It's as simple as that at the first cut. And here's the Canadian rule from uh, section, this is 80, section 83.01, the definitional section of some terrorism-related provisions in the Canadian Criminal Code. And, and it says that, uh, oh gosh, I lost my spot. There it is. Terrorist group means A, an entity that has one of its purposes or activities facilitating or carrying out any terrorist activity, or B, a listed entity and includes an association of such entities. Um, we're going to have to get Steph Carvin and, and other friends from, from up north to come on the show, perhaps, to join us also next week to unpack this for us. So, Steph, if you're listening, maybe we're going to reach out to you to, to explain what's this either-or element. Is, is the idea, as it looks at first blush, is the idea that you can qualify as a terrorist group either because your group does carry out terrorist attacks or is it really the case that option B just means that the, or the government says so, which would explain the relative seeming ease which, which, with which they've put the Proud Boys on the list. Anyways, we got to unpack that a little bit. But a number of people online today were asking about the U.S. framework and why aren't we seeing a similar action on, on America's part. Uh, it's, it's simply this. The, the designation of foreign terrorist organizations is a power the secretary of the state has upon the right procedural safeguards being followed and with an American organization, procedural due process attaches. Um, if the secretary finds that A, the organization is a foreign organization, and then B, that the organization also is one that engages in terrorist activity or retains the capability and intent to engage in terrorist activity or terrorism and, and so on and so forth. Simply put, America does not currently have a domestic designation or listing process for terrorist groups. Now, that does not mean, as some people assume it does, that there's no way to refer to any domestic extremist group as terrorist. Uh, from an FBI investigative viewpoint, there's there's nothing that would prevent uh, viewing a, a group in an enterprise investigation context, for example, as a group associated with terrorism that's a domestic terrorism scenario. Uh, what it means is that the various immigration-related and criminal law-related, especially material support-related criminal penalties that require there be a designated group in the fact pattern, that those laws don't come to place. Now, Steve, I bet we don't disagree about this. I don't think the United States should have a domestic banned group category mechanism. What do you think? I think I basically agree. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's a larger conversation that you know I've had before, and that I suspect we will have again about what you do instead to sort of do left of boom prosecutions of these groups. And you know, I for one would like to see a more rigorous invocation of some of our civil rights conspiracy laws, um, which I think are actually fairly capacious um, in and, and just have not necessarily been zealously enforced by the executive branch. Because I think you can actually accomplish, Bobby, a lot of what you and I might think the government needs to be able to accomplish without crossing the Rubicon of creating this dangerous category of domestic terrorist groups that could then be abused for other purposes. Uh, perfect. You said it perfectly. We have, we have all too ample scope of prosecution authority for conspiracy to commit various actual violent or otherwise problematic actions. We have ample authority to do that. We don't need to criminalize or go down the path of prescribing organizations 
as such. And if you're hearing that and thinking like, I actually think that sounds like a great idea because I can think of a lot of groups I'd like to see proscribed. That's great. Now imagine that whoever it is you most loathe politically has full control of the executive branch in this designation process and turns that mechanism on the groups that you would support who might then be in the crosshairs for exactly that sort of designation. I think it's very healthy for our democracy that we don't have that mechanism. And so that's that's sort of my bottom line on that. Um, I agree. All right. All right. Uh, uh, 20 scary. seconds, close this update before we do frivolity. So yeah. uh, the Supreme Court this morning dumped both the border wall case and the Remain in Mexico case from its February argument calendar after the Biden administration asked it to, um, which, you know, is relevant to us, at least insofar as the border wall case is the last vestige of the national security declaration Trump issued in February 2018, um, right? Or 19? Gosh, the years run together. Some Februarys ago, um, right? To get around Congress's refusal to fund it. Um, the only thing I'll say attention, Bobby, is this actually means SCOTUS is now looking at the possibility of issuing the second fewest number of signed opinions this term since 1862. They, um, uh, they got to step up, step up the work. All well, the so there's a, works. There's a longer story that there's a longer conversation. Like as folks talk more and more, more about SCOTUS reform, as Biden actually launches this commission on SCOTUS reform, I actually think one of the things we ought to be talking about is making the court take more cases. It, it's That's an interesting idea. They certainly... You know, it's been best to not tinker with it as long as a reasonable amount of work is getting done. But can it really be the case that there just aren't enough worthy circuit splits out there? They, no. they do seem no. to be leaving a lot of activity on the table. And a lot of that is strategic voting by the justices, and I understand that. But, you know, strategic voting doesn't prevent Congress from increasing the categories of mandatory appellate jurisdiction. I, for one, for instance, would like to see the court have to hear direct appeals in capital cases especially as they become that much more resistant to 11th hour appeals in capital cases. Like, fine. So do the work up front, right? Yeah, when it's a direct fine. appeal. That's, that's um, you get common ground on that. Um, this commission idea, are, are any details emerging yet as to how big it's going to be? Is, is there any smart, informed speculation about who's on it? Are you going to chair it? Am I going to chair it? <laughs> that would be the thing. Are you, is it going to be the Vladic commission? Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure, um, is it going to be the Chesney commission? So there's a Politico story. Everything I know about this, I know from the Politico story. Um, so there's a Politico story that said that the co-chairs of the commission are former White House counsel Bob Bauer um, and Yale law professor and OLC alumna Christina Rodriguez, um, which is a pretty impressive pair. Uh, the OLC story also said Jack Goldsmith is on the commission. Oh, um, well, look, all three of those people, and of course, Bob and Jack have been writing together a lot. That's right. And Christina, of course, here at UT, we love her, uh, fellow Texan. Um, great superstar grouping there. Other other names? Um, I don't, I, I'm trying to remember if there are any other names that I saw. I think Jack and Christina were the other names that I saw. Um, the, the story I'm hearing is it's going to be somewhere between nine and 15 members. Um, of course, I think they're trying to account for any number of axes of diversity and sort of ideological diversity. So it can actually have some kind of bipartisan um, um, uh, gestalt. But um, that should be something to watch. That That's right up there with the Facebook Oversight Board. The FOB is out there in operation now, too. We have all these these groups. Um, and and I guess PCLOB, a oh, quick note here. We didn't say we're going to talk about this, but... Uh, Adam Klein has has completed his his time as chair of PCLOB, and so I don't know that there's any public rumblings about 
who comes next as chair of P-Club. Maybe they should have you do that. You could run all these things. <laughs> I have like four jobs already. I really don't exactly. need any more. You know, I have found that you can just keep piling them on at a certain point. <laughs> 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 and you know that I'm not really joking. Um, no, you're really not. Once you get to your seventh or eighth university-wide committee, what's the difference? They're all, they're all, there's a lot of overlap, a lot of efficiencies, really. Um, okay. In all seriousness, uh, congratulations to Adam for uh, um, getting the Peaclaw back up in gear after it lacked quorum for all that time and, and doing P. Yeah, it was in Quarried. Oh, God, we haven't said that in a while. That was an early uh, NSL podcast phrase. Yep, sure was. All right, we'll see who's next. That'll be fun to see. Um, I think, friends, we have it's, it's, it's time to get frivolous. Oh, let me ask one last substantive thing before we get frivolous. So, with the demise of those cases you just mentioned, you know, we had all these cases early on in the Trump administration, including some of the tariff cases, where shall we say, suspicious claims of national security justification were being put forward in contexts that were being litigated. And you and I noted a lot years ago how this is eventually down the road going to produce a lot of appellate opinions that have to wrestle with how much deference to give on national security grounds to policy determinations supposedly premised on national security, where there's a lot of reason to really be skeptical about that. And would Trump cost the institution of the executive branch a lot of its traditional advantages on that dimension, a topic you and I both care about a lot and have written about a lot? Um, I don't know that aside from aside from the travel ban, I mean, did any of these ever end up getting to the level of producing on point circuit level, at least opinions? I'm not sure they did. The tariff case did. Um, there's a federal circuit opinion. It's just not very thorough. Um no, I mean, and, and if I may just sort of uh, um, uh, navel, navel gaze for a second, I mean, this underscores one of the real, to my mind, Bobby, criticisms of all the shadow docket stuff, which is that the court issues these dramatic emergency orders that leave in place policies like the border wall or remain in Mexico. They're supposed to be interim orders, right, premised on the notion that the court will eventually have a chance to review them, um, you know, on the merits. Um, and most of the shadow docket orders, we never get to the merits because the policies go away and the cases get mooted before you know the Supreme Court can actually resolve anything. And I think that actually ought to bear on the propriety of the Supreme Court early in an administration, allowing the administration to put into place controversial, potentially unlawful policies that no court's ever going to get the final say on. Yeah, this... This is a problem. Um, yep. So everyone needs to go read Steve's article on that to yeah. understand why. Don't, don't, don't. Are you wait, wait, for the, wait for the book. Are you teaching a uh, seminar on that? I am. And actually, my, my brilliant idea of the day. So uh, the, the House Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing on the shadow docket uh, two weeks from tomorrow. Um, and I was, trying to figure out, so I, I, I was trying to figure out if I could make it because it's actually during my seminar. Um, well, and I then like I had they, you can just have everyone there with you watching. Well, so then it occurred to me my seminar on the shadow docket. Like, hey, if there if there's how, how about killing two birds with one stone by just hey, having my seminar students? That. that is the coolest thing that your 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 class session will be actually while you're testifying, watching that's a great. seminar, watching me testify about the subject of our seminar in the middle of our seminar. I think that's pretty awesome. You got to do that. I think the students will just be happy that it means no reading for that week. I think they, they'll just be like, well, that means you can't call on us. So. Exactly. 
Uh, that would be in the middle of the hearing. Actually, Congressman, I'm going to refer that question to uh, Mr. Smith. I actually uh, think if you can get any, uh, if you can get any of them to actually try to like call on a student, that would be genius. But I really that might be <laughs> work it up, work it up with Chairman Johnson in advance. Hey, can you read it? Like one of my students is going to be watching. Can you just pretend to call? You should on like, them? okay, now I'd like to call on Sally. <laughs> can you imagine? All right. Uh, right. Frivolity time. We've yeah, already been frivolous. Slipping into so, it. So really quickly. So so um, Karen and I have for a couple of months now been devotees of the New York Times' Spelling Bee, um, which is this incredibly addictive game where they have a different one every day where it's you can play it on your phone and it's seven letters, um, uh, six letters around a center letter. And the goal Wait, is to make- How many words can you make out of it? Where every word has to be at least four letters and where every word has to include the center letter. Okay, um, I love that. Those things are fun. So anyway, um, the other night there was a lot of there were a lot of words, um, but one of the and, and and you get bonus points, Bobby, if you use every letter. That's a pangram, right? So you got you got bonus points for a pangram. Um, and one of the pangrams the puzzle on NPR. This is awesome. And one of the pangrams was lollygagging. Um, oh, that's a solid word. Wait, how many letters uh, are in the circle? Well, you can reuse letters. So there are seven yeah, letters to get, yeah, yeah. but lo- lollygagging only uses seven letters. Now I feel um, like I'm making a fortune. <laughs> so, of course, lollygagging led me to think about the all-time fantastic movie, Bull Durham, right? right. And the scene in Bull Durham. Does- you lollygag the ball around the infield. You <laughs> lollygag the first base. You lollygag. You know what that makes you? Lollygaggers? Lollygaggers. <laughs> What's our record? Eight. So Robert Wall is the sidekick, right? What's our record? Eight and 16. Eight and 16. <laughs> How did we even win eight? It's a miracle. Um, so, I, so I tweeted the lollygagging thing. Like, you know, there's a whole circle of, of people on Twitter who do spelling bee and sort of, you know, subtweet spelling bee all day. So I tweeted the lollygagging exchange from Bull Durham. Um, you know what? I'm not sure. Was it lollygagging or lolly? Anyway, whatever. Um, and um and Bobby, the best part. Do you know who replied to my lollygagging tweet? Oh, I am dying to know who the the Durham Bulls. No, nice. Very on brand. Very on brand. I was I was so happy that the Durham Bulls. Um, how did we win eight games? The Durham Bulls responded to my tweet, and I wrote back, "It's a miracle." That's some quality social media play by the Durham Bulls. So well done, Durham Bulls social media guy or guy. Nice. Um, nice. That's all. Awesome. Right, so anyway, this is all just a good. This is all just a good reminder that we should wa- rewatch Bull Durham. At our yeah, yeah. Well, so when you first mentioned you wanted to go into the Bull Durham area, I was like, man, I it's been so long, I don't remember too much. Uh, but now I have a mission. Uh, it's, such a been, great, it's such a great movie. Now, I've been busy catching up with Wandavision, but I assume you're not watching that, so. You're just no use to me there. I'm no use to you. All right. Uh, so, so last, last but not least, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Let's get a right. prediction. All right. Okay. So, um, I'm thinking this is going to be the Chiefs, and I think this. I How think original guys, of you? Huh? How original of you? It, I don't know what the line is. I assume the Chiefs are favored, but is it a is three it and a half? Oh, well, it's not a, a big line. So that means that there's a fair amount of action. It's the going. Tom. It's the Tom Brady effect. Exactly. I I just think that uh, that the Chiefs are. I think it's impressive as heck that the the Tom Brady Buccaneers got as far as they did, and and it's awesome, and I love it. It's the two of them, 
but I do not think that they have the firepower to keep up. And I think that uh, the Chiefs are going to – I'm, I'm going to give you uh, 33 to 28. Ooh, a closer game. I've taken the over. Um, I think the Bucks stay close for a half. And then I think the Chiefs figure out how to solve the Bucks defense. I'm going 37 to 13. Okay. Okay. I think it's a, uh, a low-scoring game. Be way more fun to watch. I think it's a low-scoring game at halftime, and then and then the Chiefs just turn on the Jets, and Tyreek Hill just outruns everybody in the second yeah. half. Yeah, there's. I think we agree on that. Okay, any uh, any oddity type predictions? Any weird things that will happen? Maybe in the commercials or Ooh. or otherwise the performances. Isn't the week is who's the halftime show? Is it the weekend? I, it's it's like not even like that exciting of a halftime yeah. show. I don't know. All right. Well, that that's that. Anything else going on in the realm of you know the heading into Major League Baseball? Or are they gonna Are they gonna? Be oh, the Mets picked up the Met, The Mets picked up Jordan Yamamoto. I was excited about that. Yeah. Um, they're, they're. I mean, the, the Mets might, might be looking, decent. They could be all right. The Mets could actually be like a watchable baseball team this year. I don't know what to do with myself. No, no doubt, a wave of injuries is on the way to disabuse us of that notion. Right, De, Degrom, Degrom, and Syndergaard will both go on the disabled list in the first week. <laughs> They'll high five each other and each sprain a wrist or something. There you go. Um, it is almost pitchers and catchers. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to to get some baseball going again. Although I guess there's some discussion about delaying the season. Yeah, well, I think the players are not so into that. Yeah, is the idea that like if we can just like delay for a month and there'll be that much less pressure as the vaccine continues to spread? I think the idea is that you'd rather trade February and March days for October and November days, Absolutely. right? That 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 if it's just a one to one attendance days for trade low trade no attendance days for full attendance days, right? Yeah, but get that I get that lobby. All, All right, right. Uh, we'll be back next week with Greg um, for for a special guest podcast. Um, I guess one of two. Um, I I actually feel pretty good, Bobby, that we won't need an emergency podcast between now and then. Maybe the days of the emergency podcast are behind us. I hope. Man, I sure hope so. I mean, we actually haven't had to do that too much. I guess if you'd asked on the front end of the Trump administration over under on number of emergency podcasts we'd need and what the topics of them might be, I definitely would have probably put the number higher than it turned out to be. We only had a few. But that's, I think that's more because of the limits on our schedule than the actual substantive justifications for it. Well, that's a good point. We just didn't care enough to, or weren't able enough to break free. Some combination of both. All right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. We're tired. It's true. But what else is new? That's a good point. I'm going to bed. The whole damn country's tired, Steve. When do we get to sleep? Is that 2022? I'm beginning to think. No, 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 because when you get to 2022, sorry to start this up again, we'll be in the grip of the prime, the early of the early phase of the primaries, and it's going to get terrible. So enjoy 2021 for all its flaws, which have been unusually many so far. Um, I'm what I'm just asking for is can can we have fall 2021 be really nice and normal? Is that too much to ask? That'd be nice. That's something to hope for. That's it. All right, stay safe out there. Adios.